We've begun to raise daughters more like sons, but few have the courage to raise our sons more like daughters. That was Gloria Steinem. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psych, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, second year child and adolescent psychiatry fellow, Dr. Tosha Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, Aaron. Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Joshua Poole. Hi, Joshua. How's it going, Dr. Parks? Third year psychiatry resident at UCR, Dr. Saloni Singh. Hi, Saloni. Hi, Dr. Parks. And second year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hi, Aaron. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on today's show, we're gonna talk about gender and specifically gender development, gender identity with our special guest, Dr. Gino Mortallero. Dr. Mortallero is a former professional gymnast. He received his training in psychiatry from Harvard. He's currently an outpatient psychiatrist at Kaiser and he sits on their regional gender care committee. Thanks for joining us tonight, Dr. Mortallero. Absolutely, I'm excited to be here and hello to everyone. Hey. So when we talk about gender development, uh, gender identity, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of think about, I, you know, please, please people jump in, is, you know, if you're a parent and you're noticing some of these, uh, you know, if, if your son is playing with dolls or, the, or your, uh, your your daughter is, uh, is uh, a real tomboy, hang, hangs out with, with boys and things like that, should we be worried? Should we be worried that this is going to be a long-lasting thing? Or should we be saying, okay, so she's going to be a tomboy for the rest of her life, or this, this person, that my son is going to be playing with dolls and being effeminate for the rest of their lives? Is, how should we react to that? How should we think about that? Yeah. So, you know, that's definitely being in child psychiatry. That's uh, one of those things that comes across my my way all the time. Right. And I guess this one of the things we'll learn here is I'm a big fan of of nested lists. So I guess I'll take it as a here comes a nested list, everyone. So, you know, I think whenever I'm approaching this conversation, the very first thing that I like to land on with any parent is you know, worry is not the word I want to land on, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're going to talk about things. We're going to talk about kind of what we think is going on. But it's all about we're, we're just here to kind of support and help, you know, XYZ individual kiddo, you know, live their best life, feel like themselves, right? And whatever that may be, we'll figure out together. Um, and I, you know, you'll hear me probably say a gajillion times as we go on, we talk about the gender journey. So there's no destination, there's no rush point. We take our little exploration. Sometimes we stop, we, we get distracted by like a flower, or a shiny object, and we keep going, right? And uh, that's part of the beauty of it. I feel like actually uh, when there's a child that has different interests than the standard typical stereotypical interests of their gender, I feel like there is just a possibility of their perspective being wide and broadened and then benefiting from these different perspectives rather than be locked in. It's almost I feel like they're they're going to be more cognitively flexible. But it, is that is there any research to support that? So, you know, one thing that I will kind of pull back on, I can't say whether or not, you know, my uh, my 
aliens toys versus my troll toys as a kid made me any more cognitively flexible. But um, certainly I can tell you, you know, when they looked at data from parents self-report to pediatricians about concerns for gender dysphoria in their children, right? They found that it's about roughly 1% of parents who are expressing gender dysphoria concerns in their children. Meanwhile, the actual rate of gender dysphoria is much, much lower to 0.001% occurrence rate, you know, and that's sort of the upper limit of our confidence interval, if you will. Um, so, you know, we're, we do know that parents are reporting it at a much higher magnitude as a concern than is, is actually occurring, right? Um, so certainly there is something that is just part of the everyday fabric of life that, you know, my trolls were going to battle my aliens and that had nothing to do with whether I was a boy or a girl or any non-binary identity in between there. Who won when your trolls uh, battled your aliens? You know, at the end of the day, it was it was just an all-out bloodbath. There were no winners at the end. <laughs> That's right. War is not the answer. Yeah, is there ever a winner? <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to our topic, uh, please, people. Uh, Can you t- comment a little bit on the nature-nurture question? Do you feel like uh, uh, kids are born with kind of these uh, expanded interests into non-stereotypically gender interests, or do you feel like there it could be encouraged or there's some sort of early experience where they just kind of pick up these things from either their uh, you know friends or family members? Yeah. So that is probably what led me here. I'm not going to lie, because that question has it doesn't have you know the the direct answer, or the confirmed answer. Um, one of the things that has always driven me was. If you have had ever asked me, I would have been able to say, no, I've I've always been attracted to males, right? I, I'm a gay male. And I've known since I can even think of what attraction was, whether I knew that was gay, whether I knew that wasn't even what everyone else experienced, I knew there was some part of me that had that sense. Um, and so that has long since informed at least my understanding of how I approach a lot of my work is is admittedly my own experience, which certainly is an N of one and doesn't make a, a large scale study population. But um, when we look at some of the predictors, right, that help us start to understand what characteristics in a child are helping us delineate between a child who is going to continue on with likely persistent gender dysphoria versus a child who's maybe having some mild gender dysphoria that's unlikely to persist or a child who's just demonstrating typical age-related exploration, right? There are some pretty interesting characteristics that we begin to see at extremely young ages. You know, toddlers who are having nonstop intense tantrums anytime their birth name is used, um, anytime their birth pronouns are used, and, in, and in a rigid insistence upon an opposite gender pronoun. That's fascinating. That's fascinating because, because that really argues against a social construction component being dominant here. Yeah. And and that's why, you know, whenever this question comes up, you know, in in clinical settings or in meetings, what have you, when people ask, well, how do we know 
right? That this isn't something that is peer influence, social influence, things like that. I always sort of direct them to the heuristics of the diagnosis being, you know, the a lot of the social character of however we choose to display gender expression has very little to do with the actual diagnosis itself. And when you really pull into those diagnostic criteria, you're looking at those really intense, almost baseline identity markers that these kids are demonstrating from a very early age for many of them. Um, and then certainly by the teen years, you know, the that comfort level with pronouns, things like that. I'd love to bring it back to something that Aaron asked regarding the age-related um, exploration and also the kind of, we, we talked a little bit about these toddlers who immediately want to go to the opposite gender and that there's that idea of gender dimorphism versus gender fluidity. And I, I kind of feel like I really liked what Aaron said in terms of someone who had been gender fluid having maybe an increased cognitive flexibility. I'm very energized by the idea that people could cr try on a lot of different genders. And I, I become a little less energized with the idea of an impulsive adolescent running from one gender to the opposite gender without ever knowing or really giving serious thought to all the fun ways to be gender fluid. So there's a lot of really important aspects that you that you're raising in that Alan and, and certainly I, I my own ADHD shiny th things will probably get distracted so I want you to keep me focused right um, you know in terms of the young child displaying some of the characteristics um, you know I've mentioned a lot about age normative gender exploration performance things like that one of the things that I do want to at least throw out there so I don't, you know, ADHD shiny forget, is there's actually data too that um, uh, some of these children who are displaying some of the gender dysphoria signs, particularly if they are genetic male, there's actually a higher likelihood that they would go on to be homosexual identifying cis males. And not continue with gender dysphoria, right? And so it's important because that is highlighting the importance of our role in a lot of early childhood is support, help them explore on their gender journey, right? And not say, okay, you said this, it's done, right? This is the binary, you know, here's your card, you, you've become the other gender and really encourage, particularly in our role as mental health professionals, this flexibility that we have to say, okay, well, tell me about that, right? And, you know, for some people, we are gonna be the first contact that's introduced the whole idea of non-binary, gender fluidity, two-spirited, you know, you name it. And that can be really powerful to say, well, just because you don't feel like birth gender is what is your accurate identity, that doesn't mean you're you're fully now onto this other one, right? And let's talk about what your experience is. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like a kind of a very accepting, a, a very kind of allowing the child to kind of explore these different topics in a gentle guiding way. I'm wondering, is there, the, do you have a recommendation that uh, should parents, I'll say that this way, should parents enhance exploration, encourage exploration? Should they uh, encourage 
non-gender stereotypical ways of behaving or playing or interests and things like that in order to kind of foster acceptance and development? So my Miss America hat is always like, yes, always encourage it, right? Because then by encouraging it, we're supporting each other and we're norming everything that is maybe different from us, right? My doctor hat, um, when I present this again, I'm slightly sarcastic as may have come across. I'm a a little tongue in cheek and I like to present this material by highlighting trends in changing what our social performance of gender has been throughout history. And even kind of pitching the idea that what we assume is a gender normative expression, such as, you know, girls wear dresses and they're pink and frilly, is very culturally bound and admittedly, you know, era bound to, to pretty much certain time periods for certain things and certain cultures for other aspects. And so, you know, I think at the core of that is is identifying that these things that we think are, you know, boys play with fire trucks, girls play with dolls and never shall that switch is, is such an artificial construct um, that, you know, you have to first kind of challenge that notion to then say, so it's almost natural that a kid is gonna play with whatever toy looks fun, right? And, you know, if, if the young boy has three sisters and three sisters are all painting their nails, guess what young boy's gonna wanna do? He's gonna wanna paint his nails. And until someone comes along that's an external source and tells him, no, wait, only girls do that, right? He has no assignation as to whether that's male or female for him. That is meaningless in his world. Some external source had to come and assign that value to him. I mean, just to clarify, it sounds like uh, brass tacks, like what this looks like in the day-to-day raising a child would be not so much uh, active encouragement, but more so less discouragement. Yeah. I mean, permission of expression, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and that's where it is, is, you know, you be you. You want to go outside with those cowboy boots, that skirt, and that cut-off jean jacket? Cool. Let's have a day. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit more pushing on this, um, yeah. th- because this is what I think. I think that uh, we all have these. Uh, we've all soaked up and absorbed these cultural biases about you know what you just said, um, and we're sometimes not aware of them. And I feel like uh, similar to things like racism and things like that, I feel like we've absorbed some of these kind of racist perspectives and behaviors and microaggressions and things like that. And we're not quite aware of them. So in that kind of respect, I feel like um, uh, it's a good practice to uh, specifically uh, try to encourage some of these non, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I, I feel it might be a good idea to, uh, and because I've done this before also, is to encourage non-gender conforming behavior and activities and interests and things like that because you can't, uh, if you just say, well, I'm just going to foster whatever I see, then what about the, uh, the unconscious bias, the gender norm bias that we all have and you're fooling yourself if you don't have those things? That, so what, I'm just going to throw that in the mix and, and people can attack it if they want yeah, to. No, I, I like that. I mean, I'm not going to attack it, right? I'm absolutely not going to attack it. Like I said, my Miss America, like, inner voice wants to be like, yeah, absolutely. 
and you know, I'm I'm all about. Uh, I I guess I will I will step it back and say my stance tends to be the onus is on the group in power. So I would say, you know, let the let the cis heteronorm population take on the onus of of learning, you know, expressions of other genders and, you know, having to go, you know, take Johnny football and make him go play ballerina, right? And and make them have to expand their mind and let the person who's already minoritized live their life. Um, so maybe that's my other, you know, that's that's pure expression of me, Dr. Mortellaro. <laughs> Not a research expression, but um, but certainly no, I I can I can concede that point that it it does, you know, there's obviously the weighing and the factors of, you know, any implicit bias that parents may have, providers may have, teachers may have, um, which is why, you know, I try to lean into the child being the leader there, but certainly as they move into that, you know, socially influenced age, then obviously that's starting to factor into that too. Yeah, it kind of depends on the age of the child. No, I agree with that. What does that look like, what you're talking about, Aaron? Like when you're saying you did that, what, what, could you just like paint a picture of what that encouragement looks like too? Yeah, when the kid is younger, this is again. I just I'm, I'm on a soapbox now. When the kid is younger, uh, this is my belief that it's uh, it, you're gonna have to provide, present, orchestrate an array of choices to make. A lot of them are gender related choices, yes. And um, if you uh, you have to take that active approach when on the, when they're on the younger side, because a lot of times. They're not the child is not going to express it or clearly identify it, or they're just going to go along with whatever their friends or, or or even family members are saying. So I feel like you have to go a little bit when they're younger in the in the other in the nonconformist direction. So then they have an array, and then they can select and try, and and then they'll be more specific, and then you can uh, go more on their lead. But when that age is about when you're providing it, and you're kind of orchestrating it, and then when it's when it's mostly their lead, I mean it's going to be different for every kid. So, Dr. Parks, do you mean like rather than undoing some sort of gender norm, you know, gender normative standards we have or, you know, deconstructing them, you'd want to start with a young child, any every young child and present them with a different standard or no standards? As, as yeah, I, I, I kind of feel like you, sh- you really should as best as you can. And we're talking about uh, play activities uh, dress. I, do I do I mean that I'm gonna you know dress my son in a dress and or vice versa? I, I would not not to, I'm mostly talking about activities and interests. You know, science related interests for women and for girls and things like that. I mean, some of these major ones that we're seeing some of the differences and they seem to be society or cultural related that will limit your opportunities uh, in the future if if uh, if you play along too much with them or if you don't specifically target them. That's, that's yeah. So, so certainly, and I can see that point, right? Is is where I was pitching more of the sort of tabula rasa slate. Is yours is like present the buffet and uh, let them go from there, right? And certainly, when it comes down to the activities and you know hobbies and things like that, I'm like a huge advocate of that. Um, and that's coming probably because I was a boy in gymnastics, right? And so I, I sort of bucked the quote-unquote trend there. Um, and admittedly, my 
gosh, God help me if she ever hears this. My sister-in-law is very much, she has two boys and a little girl and the boys can be whatever they want. And the girl, oh my gosh, homemakers are wonderful, which is fine, but that's all the girl hears. So of course, anytime a birthday comes around, I send her my home science kit and that's what she gets, right? And then, you know, I'll, I'll give her a princess tutu to do her science in. Um, but so I agree that we certainly, as a society, as parents, as individuals, as providers, you know, that's that onus is on everyone to expand those doors um but limits if you're just joining us you're listening to let's get psyched on KUCR we're talking about gender development gender identity with Dr. Gino Mortalero now I kind of want to move into more of a we've been we've been focusing a little bit uh mostly on child related parenting related issues I want to focus more on adult related issues and when you start having gender dysphoria feelings uh feelings that um that you're not quite sure in that exploration, what kinds of tips or strategies would you give to someone? And you might want to be specific with males, females, because you know the, you are born into certain kind of roles. About how do you explore it? What do you kind of th- activities? What kind of interests? How, who would you go to? Would you go to therapy? What are some of your um, recommendations? So the first thing that I always do, which is, a, it's a hard conversation to have, but it's one that I try my best to to temper um but it's it's an unfortunate reality of of the world that we live in is i have a conversation about what safety looks like right first and foremost that has to be the forefront of my conversation um because i want to be supportive and i want to help people find their true selves but we also have to talk about what safety looks like in that and i you know i i have that discussion about you know it's not about saying that we can't live our life it's about saying that sometimes we have to weigh the pros and cons of you know this expression of my life means more to me than maybe living in x y or z place that may not be receptive right and those are the conversations that we have with ourselves um so i i do start there because you know we do know and it's well documented that violence against people of a non-cis gender expression is incredibly increased right so that's part one especially if there is then a second minority vulnerability so you know a a non-cis individual of color has again exponentially increased rates of violence so safety becomes number one for me past that Um, I actually really love referring people to uh, the Trevor Project online resource. It has a PDF that I love, and it's called My Gender Journey. Um, And it really just kind of is a a little guide, walkthrough, call it what you will. But it helps people sort through their thoughts, some of the common questions, some of the common explorations, and maybe introduce some terms to help them learn more about themselves, learn more about the gender spectrum, and maybe even new concepts that hadn't come their way yet. Um, So I I think that's a really great resource. And it comes with, you know, forums, communities, things like that. Well, yes, on an internet basis, is at least one that's established in a protected avenue. Yeah, uh, Dr. Mortalero is still talking about children, I guess, but I, I guess there's just so there's so much to learn when you look when you look at the child population, obviously, about this since gender identity is something that you develop as you're growing. Um, right. So 
which is what we're understanding, but um, I, or we explore as we're growing rather. Uh, my question is about the statistical difference between uh, what we see. We see a t statistical difference between the number of male to female transitions versus female to male transitions globally. And I was reading, uh, I don't have exact numbers, but I was reading that it's almost two to four times as many male to female transitions uh, versus uh, female to male. And, you know, my natural question being a woman and everything we've been talking about is, and going back to the quote that, that um, Dr. Atkins, I mean, Alan said at the very beginning, you know, is this because women just have more flexible gender roles in modern society compared to men? And then follow-up question to that, if, if that is true, if, if that is playing a role, like we talked about the social constructs are playing a role, then do you see a statistical difference? Do you see an equivalent statistical difference if you look at people like the child you described who at three years old is getting angry and having temper tantrums when being referred to as the wrong gender when they have little you know, exposure to those social constructs? So I think that's an incredible question to bring up and, and point that you know, truth be told, statistics and research are not going to be able to answer at this point because it's so complex, right? The first thing to know is that any any research that's out there and and every talk I give, uh, I always preface with, is is constantly being updated and is so new on a just year by year basis that you know, it's just a reflection of how much the field is evolving. But the the very first thing in even tackling this question is recognizing that the surgical outcomes for male to female have historically been much more successful than female to male. It's only been very, very recent that there have been, you know, any sort of desirable outcomes, um, especially in the U.S. I mean, certainly in, in some European countries, they were ahead of the U.S., um, but at least within the confines of the U.S., it's it's extremely recent. So the male to female surgical interventions have definitely been more successful. Um, so I think historically, you can see more genetic females who have maybe felt a more masculine identity, but have not felt the need to go through with like an affirming hormone or affirming surgical pathway because they felt like that didn't have much to offer them, right? Feeling like those outcomes were not desirable. Um, so, so I think that's part of it. Do I think that there is a sex discrimination in sort of um, who had their needs met first? Yes, probably. Um, I would think that that's probably uh, ubiquitous throughout medicine, that if a, a genetic male has a problem, it gets solved first. <laughs> Even if the problem is that problem, quote unquote, is wanting to be female? Yes, yeah. It, it, <laughs> Remarkable, it, right? <laughs> it, yeah, and it's, you know, and this is a little tangential, but when you look at kind of uh, people who elect a detransition, one of the things is, for males who transition to female, when they start to experience gender discrimination living as a woman, they miss male entitlement. And, and that is a really hard adjustment that can lead people to detransition. 
And so I think that also highlights, you know, that 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 probably is true, that that just by being born a male, even if it was to have that gender reassignment to female, their needs were met first. Um, But then there is also a lot of really fascinating research looking at the complexity of a biological female's connection to the understanding of their own gender, their own sexual attraction versus a male's more, uh, and I say this in the most loving way possible as a cis male, caveman-like approach sometimes. Um, And that women are generally much more open to this concept of a fluid identity and a fluid even sexual orientation. Um, And men tend to be a little bit more concretely rigid when it comes to that. Uh, So I, I tend to lump that into one of the causes as well. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Molinaro, for joining us tonight. Dr. Mortalero. <laughs> Mortalero, sorry. That's sorry, Dr. Right. Mortalero. M in a bunch of bottles, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> if you've uh, listened to this show, you, have, you were listening to our discussion of gender identity, gender development. Uh, thanks to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi, Saloni Singh, Joshua Poole, and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. That's getpsychedonkucr at gmail.com. And you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a good review. This episode was recorded in each of our respective homes and then mixed by our producer at KUCR, Elliot Funks. Special thanks go out to him. I've been your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. <laughs>